My name is Summer. And my name is Nicole. And we are financial advisors. This is the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast. We have worked with many widows during our careers. Although we are not widows, we see the need for solid financial education before and after losing a spouse. We do this by telling stories from widows and our own lives. Welcome back to the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast. We are so excited for our topic today, but we haven't really gotten together in a while. So we have some new things going on in our lives. We thought we'd talk about that first. Nicole just got back from a trip and I honestly haven't heard how it was. So tell me about it. Yeah, we went to Cancun to get away from the snow and have some sunshine. So that was really fun. And it was kind of like our honeymoon, second honeymoon, because we got married right before COVID. And so we had planned something, but then we weren't able to do it because of COVID. And then we had a baby. So then we just decided we needed to do it now. I'm actually pregnant with our second kids. We got to do it before the second one comes. Yes. And that's a baby moon as our generation likes to call it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's really fun to, and this is like the first time I've been away from my son who's two now, like for this long. Yeah. Well, I guess I left him with his dad once when I went to a conference for three days, but his dad was there. Yeah. This time we left him with grandparents and they had a lot of fun and he was really good for them, better for them than for me. Wait, was this your parents? Yeah. Oh, fun. Um, but he, we're kind of working through some mommy attachment issues right now. Like he just loves me, like wants me over dad so all the cute. time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun. And sometimes it's annoying though, because he's very clingy with me. And so I, I just thought like he'd be so excited to see me, you know, like, oh, mom, you're back. I'm so happy. Like big old hug. No, he, he was not, he did not, he would not come to me. He would not come to his dad. He only wanted grandma. Oh my, gosh. my mom even left and this like, let him cry it out with me. Then he wouldn't stop crying. Oh my gosh. It was so weird. And I'm like, it's cause he's mad at us <laughs> or confused, you know, like you left for five days and I didn't know what was happening. He was just like angry with us. So we let him go to bed and my mom put him to bed. And I'm like, I'll be better in the morning when he's not so tired. And in the morning, he still was so grumpy with me and like mad at me. That is so funny. Yeah. And so we had a little chat with him about how much I missed him and loved him. <laughs> and then he actually was much better after that. It's surprising wow. what two-year-olds can understand. He was able to reason that through. That's impressive. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm back. We're not going anywhere. Oh. And then he was better, but it was really cute. But I'm like, wow, you were mad at me for leaving you or confused. That's great. Well, I'm glad you got reunited. Hopefully you had a nice time. Is it kind of weird without a kid around? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) It's good. That's great. I wish I could say I had a fun trip that I just went on, but you're so busy right now, right? Studying. My days right now consist of preparing for the CFP exam, which I'm taking next week. It's weird. Um, But that's an exam that uh, you take when you want to become a financial advisor and you want extra expertise and knowledge. Well, let's pause right there because I think this is helpful for our listeners to know is you don't have to take this exam to be a financial advisor. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) I actually would say the requirements to be a financial advisor are pretty low. Yes. No college degrees required. You just pass one licensing test. So the CFP is a great standard in our industry to say that you do have experience and education. So tell them what your requirements are. Yes. So first of all, 
I would just say that you have to, you should have respect for people who have a CFP designation. It is not easy, um, is what I'm learning. So, uh, you have to take six education courses in the core areas of finance. So tax, uh, estate, insurance, and you kind of need to know a lot. It's it's pretty wide net. Um, and so then you take those classes. It took me about nine months to do all of that coursework. And then I started preparing for the exam in November. So, and I'm taking it this next week. And my exam requirements, I had to do a review course to review all of that material. And then I've made probably over 500 flashcards and take practice questions and tests every day. So <laughs> my life's not very exciting right now. I'm very excited for it to be done with, but I feel like so much more prepared to give financial advice now that I've gone through and learned all this stuff. So I'm, I think it'll be well worth it. So yeah, great. Yeah. I took the exam like 10 years ago and I still have like vivid memories of late night study sessions and lots of chocolate to get me through. Yes. And lots of saying no to social events. People are like, Oh, come to this, do this. And I'm like, I will hang out with people one night a week on Friday or Saturday. And besides that, I need to really buckle down and do this and hopefully never have to do it again if I can pass. So that's yeah. the goal. <laughs> and let's see, what is the pass rate like? 50%? Yeah, um, it kind of depends, but it's close 58, 60% is yeah. usually what it is. So it's actually gotten better from 10 years ago. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, like the, well, so. it's great. It's always good to have um, more education experience and to build the standards of the financial industry for us. So. I agree. And I guess you should, what's the experience requirement? I think they've changed it since I took it. Yeah. So if you're working under an advisor, like I have been, you need two years of experience. Yes. Sorry. I forgot this part. And then three years of experience if you're not working under an advisor. So let's just say you're working in general finance or you're working at like a bigger firm and not directly under an advisor. You have to work for three years before you can use the marks. So mm -hmm. you could pass the test, then you can't use the marks. So until you've hit those experience requirements. So I am just about there on my experience too, which is exciting. So I can actually put the marks in my name and all that good stuff. So, yeah. and then you have continuing education that I have to do every year to yes. keep it up. And then there's an ethics. You have to do the ethics requirement too, to, you know, yes, that's they really, my test. <laughs> yeah. Which the ethics stuff I feel like could be a little stronger, but it's still good that they have an ethics requirement of, you know, you have to have some, you have to consider ethically what you should do in different situations. Yes. It's important. So one of the things I'm studying on my test for my test is something we're going to be talking about today. And that is selling your home, especially after becoming a widow or widower. I want to talk a little bit about that, what that looks like, kind of some of the, the different scenarios. So we're going to dive right into that. Great. Well, since you have it fresh on your mind from your studies, I'll let you get into some of the technical stuff yes. to get started. <laughs> okay. So Let's, I'm going to start with a story. So I have some friends from my hometown. They bought a home and I'm going to change the numbers because I don't really know the specifics, but I know ballpark. So they bought a home about 10 years ago for $500,000, beautiful home on a few acres out in the country. And they started renovating their home, took out the whole kitchen, redid it. Beautiful, by the way. Um, and then the backyard 
they had a huge pond <clears throat> and they filled it in halfway. Um, so it was a reduced size because it was like taking up the whole backyard. And they put in um, a nicer fence around their pool. They put in a nice patio, just really hardwood floors inside the home. They put a lot of money into their home to make it a little more comfortable and fit their lifestyle. So they did all that. Um, and so when they wanted to sell their home last year, I'm just going to say they, the selling price was 1.5 million. Okay. Oh, wow. So went up a ton during went that time. Went up a ton, right? And partially because they made it look so much more appealing than it was before. And because the market did so well, the housing market in 2021 and 2020. So huge change, right? So usually when you go to sell your home, you take the sale price and then you take what you paid for it out. So in this case, 1.5 million. 500,000 out and then you're left with a million dollars, right? Well, and that's that's the gain you'd get on your home. However, you can actually add to your basis by or your basis being the the amount you paid for it by improving your home. You can add those things onto it. So let's say they spent $100,000 on their kitchen. Well, their $500,000 cost basis is now $600,000. And then let's say they did another $150,000 in their backyard, then their cost basis goes to $750,000. So now that gain is only $750,000 when they go to sell it. So those improvements that you make to your house can actually lessen the amount of gain you have to pay when you go to sell it. And gain is important because you have to pay taxes on the gain. Yes. So when you sell your home, you need to pay tax on the gain. However, there's some fun tax laws that give you an exclusion for certain amounts of gain. So if you're single, you can um, you can not have to pay tax on $250,000 of gain if you've lived in the home for two of the last five years. It's like your principal residence. That's where you live. You have to meet that requirement before they're going to give you that exclusion. If you're married, the same two out of the last five year rule applies and it's $500,000 exclusion. If you file joint taxes. If you file jointly, yes. <laughs> so there's some nuance here, um, but that's kind of the general premise. If you're if you're married filing jointly, you get that exclusion. So this family I know, they were married filing jointly. Let's say they, they had $750,000 of cost basis after their improvements. So when they sell their home for $1.5 million, they get to exclude $500,000 because they'd lived there for 10 years and they're filing jointly. So that leaves them with $250,000 of gain, which is then taxed at the long-term capital gains rate. So they have to pay between 15 or 20% depending on their tax bracket on that gain. So it's still a lot of money to pay in taxes, but it's way less because of the exclusion and the um, capital gains. So, or sorry, the exclusion and the improvements. So that's a scenario of married filing jointly. Now let's talk a little bit about if your spouse died. So your spouse dies, um, you get to claim the $500,000 exclusion, if you lived in the house for two of the last five years, you have two years from the date of death of your spouse to still qualify for that gain. Yeah. So let's clarify like with a story that 
I've, uh, this is a real client, but I'm going to change names and some details. Spouse dies and um, she thinks, oh, I would like to downsize this house. It's way too big for just me. And it's not really, you know, there's a few things I would like to change and like it to be a better like age in place house for myself. So, but it takes her a few, a while to decide where she wants to move. Should she move closer to her kids or should she stay where she, you know, has community and what kind of house does she want with a yard for her dogs or not a yard so she doesn't have to take care of it. Um, so like for this client, it took her a while. And so she barely got in under the cusp of two years. <laughs> Racing. Yep. Yeah. And so she still got the $500,000 gain exclusion because she sold her home within two years of her, her husband dying. There you go. Perfect example. So the other thing that happens when you're, when you have a spouse pass away or anyone pass away for property, like a home or other types of property, you get a step up in your basis. So remember the basis is what you paid for it. But when your spouse dies, like let's say that you paid $500,000 for your home and your spouse dies four years later and the home is now worth $700,000. So you get a step up to the fair market value of the home, depending on what kind of state you live in, it can be a different amount. So if you live in a community property state, uh, it gets messy, but there's a few community property states. So if you live in California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, Wisconsin, I hit all of them, I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> any of those states, you get a full step up to the $700,000 at the date of death. If you live in any state that I didn't list, like me, I live in Utah, you get half. So you take, what would that be? $100,000. Am I thinking that through? Yeah. So you'd say half the value of the house is three fifty, dollars and that was his mm -hmm. half. And so only his half gets the step up to 350 and then the other half your home stays with your previous cost value yes. cost basis yeah so i don't know we're we don't have a notepad in front of us to run the numbers but only yeah. his half gets the step only up. his half gets the step up i should have used better numbers <laughs> more round numbers so that is how your step up works and then you can take the gain on on top of that so like in a community property state if you sold your home and you get the full step up so date of death value seven hundred thousand, then you sold it within two years um, of their passing you don't really owe any tax because you get the step up in basis and there's no gain. And if you do have any gain, then you have that $500,000 worth of exclusion. So I guess if the markets did yeah. <laughs> crazy. Which we saw crazy stuff during COVID. It's so. true. During COVID, homes appreciated, like depending on the, the value and the size, 150, 200,000. I remember updating some of our clients net worth statements and I would like click refresh on the Zillow home value and just watch just huge number jumps. Yeah. So if your your spouse died during that time, that gain could really help you. Um, and again, you got to use it within two years and you have to have lived in the home for the last two of the five years. So, And you can't be remarried as a yes. widow. So if you got remarried and it's still within two years and you want to use that 500,000, you can't. And your new spouse hasn't been living there for two years. So you can't use their 250,000 right. until they've lived there for two years. Yes. So something to be aware of. Yes. So 
yeah, you can't be remarried. If you do, you get the single amount, 250000 So good to know. I think a good takeaway for anyone who's been widowed and it's very common to have to need a change in a residence after losing a spouse, just like Nicole mentioned that story earlier, maybe the home's too big or expensive. So uh, looking at, you know, what you've what improvements you've made on your home and keeping track of those. We'll get into a little bit more of that here soon, but that's important. And then also remembering, okay, I have two years if I, if I want to use that $500,000 gain exclusion. So keep those in mind. Yeah. And man, it's just so, there's so many weird, complicated, um, situations too. We're trying to keep things simple here today. And so there's definitely a lot of other issues and scenarios that could happen. (laughs) So, you know, this is just for illustrative purposes today. And you should really talk to a tax accountant um, if you need some help with your personal situation. Absolutely. There is a lot of nuance. So when you go to your accountant, anyway, they're going to ask you about, um, you know, the history of your home, all the improvements. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So I was speaking with a CPA or accountant and he said a lot of people don't realize or remember what improvements they've made to their home when they go to sell it. And remember, those improvements are important because they can lessen the amount of gain you have to pay. So he said, oftentimes he has to go track this down for them and it gets a little messy. And so it's really helpful if the client or whoever he's working with comes prepared with some of those uh, improvements that they've done. So let's say that you bought your home for 500000 and it's now worth $1.5 million. That'd be nice, right? Um, just like that earlier example. So keeping track, oh, I got a new roof. Well, that is important because that is a big improvement to your home. It may increase the outside appearance and it could definitely help with, you know, whatever roofs do, honestly, (laughs) keep the rain out, that kind of thing. But a new roof, especially if it was like 30 years old, big improvement. If your, you know, cupboard breaks and you repair it, it doesn't really improve your home. It's just like, oh, a, you know, a little new cupboard door. Something we w- were reading about too is that it really needs to, what did you say, a year? Yeah, you whatever say? you do needs to have a life of longer than a year for it to be really counted as an improvement. Yes. So little repairs like that, I they're not going to be included. And that's very specific guidance from the IRS. It's, it needs to be an improvement, not a repair. But they don't have like a list that says, oh, these are improvements and these are repairs. It's a little subjective and it's kind of up to your accountant, but it really would help if you have good records. So roof replacement, even carpet replacement, it's improving your home. Um, If you remodel big improvements, you know, making the home worth more, uh, that kind of thing. So keeping track of those is important and remembering like little repairs, fixing a fence, those kind of things that's not going to and, and uh, lessen the gain that you're going to have to pay if you sell your yeah. home. Yeah. Record keeping is always good. Um, the other thing I would just mention that this, uh, I get a frequently asked question from people like, well, in order to get that gain exclusion, I need to hurry and buy a new home, right? No, that's not how it works. I think that it's there's confusion because I can't remember how long ago this changed, but like 20 years ago, be, they used to not do the exclusion. It used to be that you would roll any money you rolled into a new primary residence. 
um, had certain tax benefits. So before that was the law. That's why people get confused. But um, no longer, you can just sell the house. You don't have to buy a new house to get that exclusion. Yes, good, good caveat. So I think that is everything regarding selling your primary residence. But we know this is really common, and Nicole's going to talk a lot about this, is selling a rental property or a property you don't live in. So we're going to talk about that and kind of it's different than a primary residence. So, yeah. So let's start with a story. So um, I had clients um, that came to me and um, we'll just call them Mary and Marvin. They had put most of their wealth into real estate and lots of different types of properties, mostly rentals, residential rentals. Um, but they wanted to retire and they couldn't because the cash flow from the rentals with their social security was not enough to replace their income. They had quite a large net worth, but it was all tied up in real estate. And I had somebody tell me this recently and I've heard it before. And I think it's a really great, you know, way to describe real estate and rental properties is that it really benefits the next generation because what they were running into is, well, we're getting rent off of this and we're develop, you know, generating a pretty good cash flow. But the more of the appreciation in their wealth was actually from the properties just going up in value. But if they went to sell any of those properties, they were looking at hefty taxes because they'd owned many of these properties for 15, 20 years. The market had done really well. And so like even one of their properties they were looking at selling would be like $750,000 in gain. They did mostly like duplexes and apartment buildings. So quite hefty apartment building or you know, numbers too. And you can't just sell, well, you can, but it's difficult. It's hard to sell half of an apartment building. And so to, <laughs> to free up any of that money so that they could retire was going to cause them significant taxes because none of these were primary residences. So when they sold that property for seven and the gain was 750,000, they owed 20% plus the 5% Utah state tax. So whatever state you live in. Yikes. So 25% of that 750,000. And they just really didn't like taxes too. They were really trying to find a way around it. And we run into that with several clients where, um, you know, wow, my property appreciated so much, but look at all the taxes I'm going to have to pay to sell it. Whereas if you, if they just waited until they passed away and their kids inherited the property, they get that step up in basis at death. And so the whole gain, the $750,000 would be gone. And now the kids inherit the property with the new cost basis at the date of death value. And, you know, if they sell it right away, you know, they can basically have no gain or if they sell it and, you know, takes them a few months to do it and there's a $100,000 gain, they do have a, a tax right there. And it's short-term tax because it's less than one year. Yes, which is taxed differently. Oh. Yeah. But I guess it's a clarification. If you sell anything with less than one year, you have short-term capital gains, which is ordinary income tax, yeah. whatever your tax bracket is. If it's longer than a year, it's long-term. And then it's taxed at the 15 or 20% or, or even zero. Yeah, it could be zero. <laughs> which but, is great. Yeah, you have to be in a pretty low tax bracket for yes. that. Yes. Um, so it definitely can get messy. And so property is usually better if it's left to your kids so that they can get the step up in basis. Yes. So, or, or you can pay the gain. Yeah. Or pay the gain and take that into account when you decide to sell. They were just having a hard time saying, well, we sell it, we lose the rental income and we have to pay all this tax. Is it worth it or not? 
and for them they had to otherwise they can retire yes we've seen this a lot with other people though too like we had another lady who her husband passed away and he did all of the property management on their properties and it was going to cost her a little bit of money to hire a property manager and so reduce her income plus she just didn't want to deal yeah (laughs) she didn't want to be a landlord which oh my gosh I, I'm with her. I don't want to be a landlord. <laughs> so she wanted to sell some of her properties, at least the ones that were harder to manage. And she wanted a little more income to go travel and then what her properties were generating. And so, yeah, she had to pay pretty hefty taxes for that. We don't mean to bash on real estate, but it does tie up your wealth because it's all in a home and it's not very liquid, meaning you can't like access that money, you know? And so if you're in that situation of uh, having a spouse recently pass away, your rental properties could have a lot of equity in them that you could tap into if you were to sell it. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, and, Yeah, especially if the rental income is not enough. Yeah. If you lose like his income and now you need more. It can be tricky. I was going to say too, I guess there's other alternatives too. If you don't want to sell the property, but maybe you want a different property, you can do what's called a 1031 exchange and move into a different kind of property. Um, maybe one with less maintenance or something like that. We're not going to talk too much about that on this episode, but there are some alternatives. So talk with your accountant and ask, you know, what are my options? So I yeah. don't have to pay exorbitant amount of gain. <laughs> yeah. 1031s can be quite complicated, but it is a way to you're basically deferring the gain with a 1031 instead of, so you're moving to a new property instead of getting out of real estate completely. Yes. That's one option. It's not escaping the real estate market though. That's the main point. Yeah. (laughs) If you want, if you're wanting to accomplish that, you you need to sell or like we said, you know, if if you can avoid that, holding on to it until you die, it gets a step up really great for the people who inherit your money. So Mm -hmm. here's another option too, is if, um, you well let's tell so we live in utah and a lot of people like to move like to have a second home in saint george it's <laughs> yes, like four hours very away. popular <laughs> and it's a lot warmer there and so they'll have two homes and i've um had a client who she owned a home here in um davis county a past a little bit north of salt lake city and her and her husband owned a house in St. George as well. And he passed away and she decided that she would rather spend most of her time in St. George where it's warmer and build her community of friends there. And so she sold her home, you know, used the exclusion on her primary residence here and then moved into her second home in St. George. Now that made it her primary residence. And in order to make it your primary residence, you got to change like the address on your driver's license and your tax returns, and you have to live there most of the year. Um, But then that then becomes your primary residence. And after two years, she could actually sell that home and get her own personal exclusion, the 250,000 exclusion on good gains, because it's now her primary. It has to be two years that you live in it. And also two years, you can't have done and gotten that exclusion in the last two years either. And then she was able to sell that home and buy a different home with the combined proceeds from the two homes um, into like more of like her dream home, her dream retirement home. Which is a nice strategy, actually, because then you can, yeah, claim it as your personal residence and the gain will be so much better um, because it's your personal residence. You get that exclusion. So not a bad idea if you're if you're looking into that. Yeah. So that's another way to avoid. And I've seen other people do that where they move into a rental property for two years before they sell it to help lower the tax consequence. Um, so hopefully you like the rentals you've bought and want to live there. <laughs> 
Um, Another option, and we love charitable planning at our firm. um, We'd say that it's one of our specialties is to do charitable planning for people. Because again, we live in Utah and a lot of people are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they pay... um, a 10% tithe of their income every year to the church as a, it's a charitable deduction. And so most people view that as a regular expense that they have. And so we can use that. And there's a lot of other churches that pay tithing too. So, but it's just a big uh, strategy here in Utah. Yes, very, of our demographic. run into it all the time. <laughs> um, so, and we have a lot of other clients that are very charitable minded as well and give to other charities. And so if you have a big... Um, you know, tax bill in one year because you sold a rental property or a business, then there's a lot of charitable strategies you can use. I don't want to get too much into it, but some things could be like you could prepay 10 years of your charitable contributions into a donor advised fund to help offset that big tax year. Um, there's also like charitable trusts and stuff like that. Yes. I think that's so important to mention because sometimes, I don't know if you're, if your widow and losing your spouse is so challenging. You're facing so many emotions. And then if you're trying to liquidate or get out of a property to get a little more free cash flow, being hit with tax is, is awful. So there are some options, especially if you're charitable minded and, and other, other things we could do too, or um, your accountant can work with you on, but there's ways to reduce that tax if, if you're proactive about it. And so don't be, don't be afraid if, um, if you have a huge amount of gain, talk to your accountant and see what options you have because you could reduce that. And planning ahead. Sometimes we get people who come talk to us too late Yeah, and, or like, you know, business is another thing, or if you sell, you could have a big tax gain, or if there's property associated with the business, like the business owned a building or, you know, a dentist, you know, owns their own building, stuff like that. And often you, if we structure the sell, right, you can actually sometimes even donate part of a property or part of a business to a donor advised fund before the sell goes through yes. to help lower those taxes. And again, people come to us way after and we're like, oh no, like we yes. could have saved you hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. That was a recent situation actually we did run into and it's kind of yes. like, oh, darn. December is an important month. You need to come in before that. Yeah. <laughs> That's when a lot of these tax things are due, like December 31st. If it's done by then, you're okay. And I'm speaking more in a blanket sense. There's different rules for different things. But rule, good rule of thumb, I would say, is probably come in six months before that because these things could take a while to get set up. We did a donor advised fund in December and it just took so long. There's all this paperwork and we also had some people come in that aren't clients, but they're looking to become clients. And they're like, oh, you know, we have a lot of tax this year. Can you help us set up a 401k? And it's like December 20th. And we're like, um, well, we'll pass the deadlines on some of those <laughs> and there's not going to be time. So yeah, it's very challenging and pretty much impossible to set up retirement plans and things like that in a 10 day period. That's a lot to ask. So come in early. It's never really too early. So, and come in before you're going to do the transaction. Well, we can help with it before then too. So there's a lot of things you can do to help minimize taxes with good planning. All right. So we have been talking about how to sell um, a real estate and, and minimize taxes. There's actually a very interesting strategy you can use to try and minimize taxes if you're trying to sell a property. 
Um, and this could also apply to other things, investments as well. So we talked about community property states, where if you live in that state, you get a full step up in basis. And community property states, we mentioned a list of them like Idaho and Nevada. If you live in a separate property state, which is most states, uh, then your if your spouse dies, you only get a step up in basis on half of the property. So if you have a million dollar um, duplex that you own and you bought it for $300,000 and it's now appreciated to a million dollars, you have 700,000. If you sold it, you'd have to pay taxes on it. It'd be quite a hefty tax bill. Then if one of the spouses dies, half of that property gets a step up in basis. And the spouse that's still living, their half does not. So it still could be quite a hefty tax bill where, um, let's see, it would be still like $400,000 in gains that you'd have to pay taxes on if then the wife wanted to sell that property. Um, so we have seen this strategy where you transfer the whole property to the spouse that's going to keep living. So for example, let's say John and Jane own a property and it's a million dollar duplex and they have a $300,000 cost basis on it. And John has been diagnosed with cancer, and a terminal cancer, and they know that there's not going to be enough income for Jane and they want to be able to sell this, this duplex so she has the money, the million dollars to use to live on. But it's going to be quite a hefty tax bill. If they live in a community or separate property state, then when John dies, his half gets a step up in basis, but Jane's does not. And so there's still a big hefty tax bill, a lot of gain, like $400,000 in gain that Jane would have to pay taxes on. So they do some planning where they move the property from Jane's name to John. Uh, and it's now all in John's name. So when John dies, the whole property gets a step up in basis to a million dollars and Jane doesn't have to pay any taxes. Uh, it's a great planning strategy. The problem is, you know, when you're going through something like terminal cancer, do you really have the capacity to do planning strategies like this and, and move that property to his name only? So that's a big problem. The other issue is that there's a one-year look back. It's like a one-year gift back. So if he, John died at nine months after they did this transfer, it's as though it didn't happen. And then Jane still has to pay the taxes, but there's no downside. It just goes back to as though it would never happened. So ideally, well, ideally he would live for more than a year. So they have the time together, but also so they can use this tax strategy. And then the other issue is, um, you know, hopefully you have all the trust in your, um, your spouse, because once Jane transfers the property to John's, it's his property and he could go change it and give it to one of the kids instead of back to Jane. So you just got to make sure that everything's set up correctly, that it would go back to Jane and that there's full trust there. But it is a very interesting strategy for people who um, know that they have a shorter life expectancy um, or that are terminally ill. If you can have the capacity, this is one of the reasons to maybe have a financial planner who's helping you through this and can help walk through some of those strategies. Any takeaway you want to add before we wrap up? Um, I would just say that taxes are terrible. <laughs> They're so complicated and they just get more and more messy the more laws they pass. And so I hope this wasn't too boring for people. Oh my gosh, me too. And um, But it's good to know about some of the things to be aware of. But I would just say, if you don't want to remember all this stuff, <laughs> 
just get, find yourself a good accountant, a good financial advisor to help you because it's messy. Yeah, uh, it is complicated. Even we have to do research on this, these types of topics. They're not like easy to understand. It's not always intuitive. Yeah, we have a team of good accountants. We know that we can call and ask our questions to too. <laughs> yes, and then my takeaway from earlier, I'll reiterate. Remember to keep track of improvements on your home. Uh, it doesn't hurt to come to your accountant, even with the small ones. Um, he can kind of, he or she can kind of help you uh, sort through those. Yeah. So, And I would say that COVID was a real surprise for a lot of people on how much their house values went up. And a lot of people decided to sell when they saw how much their house was worth. And people were running into tax issues because of all the gains on their homes. And so you may think, oh, well, 500,000 is plenty of a gain exclusion. I don't need to keep track of the improvements, but you never know. The world has been interesting lately. Yes. You never know who's what neighborhood's going to be built right next to yours. That's going to drive up the value or whatever. You just, yeah, it, it's, it's true. You don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah. And a home is such an important asset because many people have most of their wealth tied up in a home. And you know, it's kind of like a forced savings when you have to pay a mortgage, you have to save into your home. And so it's a really great asset. And so you should really make sure you're taking care of your home and keeping proper records so that you can really utilize that asset. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Well, appreciate everybody listening today and um, check out our website if you want more information or to find other podcasts. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to know more about us and what we do, visit our website, rockhousefinancial.com. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Rockhouse Financial is an SEC registered investment advisor and the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the opinions of Rockhouse Financial or any other sponsors of the podcast. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.